Amen. Amen. Okay, we can let the children be dismissed for uh, junior church. <clears throat> I want you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Ephesians. Book of Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to focus our attention on one verse for the majority of our time this morning. Um, <clears throat> if you have a bulletin on your lap, why don't you also put that in at First Thessalonians chapter 2. Okay, First Thessalonians chapter 2, a little bit later we'll turn to that portion of scripture also uh, this morning. We live in a world that is a hurting world and as we have sung there is weeping, there's dying, there's hiding, there's poverty, there are a lot of struggles in a fallen world. And one of the questions that we as believers have to ask ourselves is how should we respond to the depths of poverty, to the struggle that we see in our culture? What is the appropriate Christian response? And, and in this sense, as we look at it from the perspective of being voters, how do we respond to the needs that are present? And, and what should the government be doing? What is the appropriate response to the desperate needs that are present within our culture? I don't think anybody is denying that there are serious needs in the world that we live in. I think that is very, very evident. But the question that we need to ask is, what is the biblical response to this issue of needs, particularly of financial needs? The topic of our discussion this morning is going to be the value of work and generosity. Okay, the value of work and generosity. God's word places almost, if you will, an equal emphasis upon the importance of work as a means of provision and, upon the, and, and an emphasis also upon generosity as a, means of ne- as a means of meeting the needs of the poor. So we, we kind of wrestle. And this, the, 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 the issue with this is you're always going to have gray area. Okay, it's going to be very difficult to strike stark lines and say, this is exactly what we should do. This is exactly the kind of policy that we should favor. There's always going to be some degree of flexibility here. Okay, so be careful that you don't try to lock into black and white categories. This morning, I want to I emphasize for you two categories that I think the Bible strikes very boldly, okay? One is work as a means of provision. The other is generosity as a means of meeting the needs of the poor, okay? Those are two emphases that I think you cannot escape if you desire to be a biblically informed Christian, okay? Those two things are there regularly and repeatedly throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. Okay, the book that we're jumping in the middle of in Ephesians 4 is a book that breaks into two pieces. Chapters 1 through 3 talk about the gospel that transforms people. Okay, how God invades our space through his love, how by the work of Jesus Christ in chapter 1, his blood is shed to purchase us and to bring us into a relationship with him and how the Holy Spirit affects that change that we call regeneration. Okay, when we are, by the power of God, by the work of the Spirit, experiencing the life-changing work of Jesus through his blood that cleanses us from sin and changes us. Okay, so chapters 1 through 3 argue for that. If if I was to point out what I think is the central verse to chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians, I would say it's Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship. We talked about this this summer. We are his workmanship, his project, his astonishing design. Okay, we are that, okay, created in him to do what? To do good works that God ordained beforehand that we should walk in them. 
So God in the gospel comes to us, applies the work of Jesus Christ to our hearts by the regenerating work of the Spirit. And the result of that is that we are new. And we have been created by God for a purpose that he wants us to live out. That's the thrust of chapters 1 through 3. 1 through 3 in Ephesians is not practical teaching, it's doctrinal teaching. Okay, it's deep, dense theology about transformation by the power of God. And if you've never experienced that change, I would encourage you this morning, flee to the cross that we have sung about so powerfully. Find help in your hurting. Find help in your struggle. God aims to transform your heart by his power. And when he does, he makes you a new creation. And the purpose for that transformation is that you would do good works. And I believe much of those good works is directed towards alleviating the pain that is around us, not only physically, but also monetarily. So then when you move into chapters 4 and following, really 4 through 6 of the book, you find a picture of this new life, a picture of this transformed life worked out. And Paul's going to go through a number of areas in our lives, very specific and practical areas in our lives, where this transforming work of Christ that takes us out of spiritual poverty and brings us into spiritual riches in Christ, a complete contrast is present. Okay, he's going to talk to us about how how do you work out that change? And he comes to the heart of how that change is worked out in verse 22 of chapter 4. Here's here's the application of the gospel. He says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life. Okay, so who's he addressing? He's addressing believers who have been transformed. What do you have if you've been transformed? You have a way that you used to be. You have a way that is behind you. That is part of your old life. And you have been made new, a workmanship of God. The purpose to do good. Sharing the gospel, loving others, relieving needs. Okay, that's the, that's the flow of this transformation. How do, we, how do we keep it going? How do we, in a sense, maintain and cooperate with God in that work? That's the question that this text begs. You were taught with regard to your former way of life, the old self, to put off your old self. Why? It is in the process of being corrupted. And the words that are used here, are, if, if I was to use a word that's kind of, strange it would be the word it's to say that your old self is gross it is corrupt and corrupting the idea here is to talk about uh, decomposition okay the corruption that you see in an animal a carcass laying along the road that's kind of fermenting and getting odd in shape okay that's the word that's used here your old way of life is corrupted by sin It becomes distorted. It becomes ugly. What does God do? In salvation, he rips off that old self. And he makes you a new creation. That's the process of transformation that this text is emphasizing. So we cooperate with God by doing what? By continuing to reject the old self. To stay as far away from it as you possibly can. Why? It is corrupt and it is corrupting. It will have a negative effect on your life if you drift back into the patterns of the old self. God has transformed you. He has drugged you out of and recreated you as a new person. So he goes on to say in verse 23, he did this so that you would be made new in the attitude of your minds. That is that the change that he brings is an internal change that yields itself in external behavior. Okay, so he does this by the renewing of your mind, which should bring back to your minds also Romans 12, 1 and 2. Okay, he says, so be made new in the attitude to think differently 
and put on the new self that is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. This to me is powerful. Okay, the change that Paul is arguing for that transforms us and changes our relationships to the world around us is a work of God that in this case is called a recreation. You were created once in your mother's womb and born and experienced life. Paul now says that you in God, by the power of the Spirit, have become a new creation. Folks, that's exciting. The church is a new creation. I know of a church that is called New Creation Ministries. Okay, what's the emphasis of it? The emphasis of of it is, if you have been born again by the power of the Spirit of God, you are not what you used to be. He, by the power of the Spirit, has forgiven you and changed you. Okay, so you are a new creation. Folks, what do new creations do? They do different things. They do new things. And the rest of this book aims at this purpose. Continue to fight off the old, corrupting patterns. And put on the new self. Receive the blessings that God pours into your life by the Spirit. And be the new creation that he made you to be. Now, what he does then is he begins to apply that new model, if you will, or picture of Christian living. This idea, put off these clothes and put on new clothes. Okay? I remember when I was a kid, I would come in from being out in the woods and we would dig holes. We did all kinds of amazing things in the woods. We would come home covered with dirt. You know what my mom would do? She'd hit the garage door open her button, and we had a garage that entered in the front of the house at the basement level. Okay, so when I saw that door coming, going up as I came in, I knew what she was saying. Get off those clothes and put on your other clothes. Change your identity. I don't know you when you look like that. Okay, it's that kind of a picture. So what happens? When a police officer prepares to go into work, what does he do? He takes off his normal clothes, and he puts on new clothes, and those new clothes are a picture of what? Of the authority of the change that comes when he goes into work. He is a different person at work. Okay? That uniform tells you who he is and what he does. Okay? In Christ, what are we to do? We're to put on this new creation that tells people around us what we do and who we are. But the external is not clothing. The external work of the Spirit of God is only seen in the practical steps of our daily life. As we put off the old and put on the new man that is created by God in Christ. And this morning I want to I just apply this theme, this model, to one specific area that's found in verse 28. It's asking this question, how does the recreation of God, how does the transforming work of God affect us in relationship to our possessions? Okay, and then out of it, I want to draw a couple of principles that hopefully will help you and inform you about how you should think about government policy as it relates to things like welfare, uh, things that relate to uh, entitlements and those kinds of things. How does a Christian respond to those things? What is the responsibility of government in regards to the needs that are present around us? And what is our responsibility as the people of God? How does our faith affect the work of God in our daily lives? Okay? Verse 28 then, let's read this. And by the way, as you work through this text, you'll see that there are a number of places where Paul is addressing specific issues. He talks about, in verse 25, the issue of truth-telling. He talks about the issue of anger. He talks about, in verse 28, the text that we want to look at. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something that is useful with his hands that he may have something to share with those in need. 
Here's where I'd like us to put the focus of our attention this morning. I want to deal with this text, three commands that are given. The first one is, to all of us, stop stealing. Okay? That's an interesting statement. Okay? Stop stealing. The word in the Greek is klepto. Okay? We get our word kleptomaniac. Okay? Stop being a thieving person. Okay? What's the idea? Put off dishonesty and put on honesty. Okay, in Christ, you have become a new creation. If in the past you used to steal, what is he saying? Stop doing that. You're new in Jesus. And then he's going to talk about the positive outcome and application of this principle. Okay, is stealing a problem in our culture? It all depends how you define it. All depends how you define it. Is dishonesty a problem in our culture, which often leads to theft? Well, I think the answer is very clear. Looked up statistics on theft, particularly retail theft. I grew up in a retail environment, so this is the direction I always look. In the United States of America, $37 billion is estimated to have been stolen in the retail environment of companies in America. $37 billion. $16 billion of that was stolen by employees. Okay? $16 billion by people that work for the company. Okay? Some become very creative in this task. I, I remember when I was younger and working for my dad in the uh, hardware store that he owned, <clears throat> I remember a gentleman saying to me one day, he says, hey, uh, could you help me load this lawnmower in my car? I was like, sure. Whenever I loaded in his car, he drove off. My brother comes up to me and says, hey, where's that lawnmower? So I helped the guy put it in his car. He's like, we didn't sell a lawnmower. So we gave one away. <laughs> What happened? I, people come creative, okay? I, I remember we discovered a pattern that was happening in our Milwaukee tool department, which was back then was like the Cadillac of power tools. People were taking, probably one or two people, were taking trash cans stacked. Lift one off, put power tools under, put the trash can in, go up, be rung out for two trash cans, and out the door. Finally, we're like, where are all the Milwaukee tools going? Okay, we had a guy that came into our store. He had a charge account, one of the wealthiest men in our town. I can't remember his name, and if I would, I probably shouldn't say it. He, he, would, he was a kleptomaniac. He would walk around the store and just find something he liked and stick it in his pocket. So we were like, how did this? It was, it was weird because it was kind of embarrassing. That, I mean, this very wealthy man's like, what are you? So we figured out a way to kind of stop him. What we would do is we would follow him around because he was, he was not even discreet about it. He would walk around just, if he liked something, he'd stick it in his pocket. We'd go over to that area, find the most expensive thing we could find, and write that on his house charge account. And then he would gladly pay the bill. Okay, and over time, we just started to elevate the price of the things he was stealing until he finally stopped. I was like, people do stuff like this? Okay, it's, it's, it's amazing. We live in a world where, where theft and where dishonesty, it's present. And it's something that I think also affects the church. Now, what does this text mean when it says, stop stealing? Okay, here's, I think, what it means. I think at one level, it establishes the right of private property, meaning there are things that belong to, let's say in this case, there are things that Rocco has that belong to him. I don't have a right to go and take them. If I take things that are his personal property, that's stealing. Okay, so when the Bible argues against stealing, it's arguing for personal property. Okay, so to live in a country where people have things and own things is completely biblically appropriate. And I think this text, in a very inadvertent and yet somewhat direct way, addresses that issue. Thou shalt not steal. What does that mean? It means people have things that belong to them, and if you take it, it's stealing. It's a crime. 
Okay? Secondly, what is Paul saying here? Paul is saying that stealing is part of the old self. Okay? Let him who was stealing. That's the literal translation here. The one who was stealing, tell him to stop stealing. Okay, that's the directive. So the thief should stop being a thief. Now, I think we need to bring this down to where we live and say that this stealing is part of our old life. But the prohibition that Paul is giving here is a comprehensive prohibition. In a setting where an employer oppresses workers by not giving them fair pay, what is he doing? He's stealing. In a context where an employee gives shoddy work by taking its extended breaks or stealing time, what is he doing? He's stealing. When citizens cheat on their taxes or individuals steal company property because they believe the company owes them, what is it? Stealing. We live in a country that in many ways overlooks this issue. Kind of expects that there's going to be a certain percentage of loss. All right, what is Paul saying? Paul's saying there were people in the church who had been so transformed that they were no longer a thief, but they used to be. Okay, and what happens? Old patterns creep into present living. The new creation becomes corrupted by the old desires. And what is God saying? Through this text, he's saying, stop doing that and start doing this. Okay, so stealing is part of my old self. Secondly, stealing in this context is clearly forgivable. Okay, the one who steals, who steals, tell him to stop doing it. There is hope. Okay, no matter what the sin is, there is hope and forgiveness that is available. There were people in the church that Paul's addressing who used to be thieves who no longer are, and they are to cease and desist from that activity no matter what their circumstances in life are. Stealing is forgivable. But it also, I think, indicates something like this, that for that person that used to live that way, it was the easy way of life, there was a tendency to drift back towards that pattern. And so what is Paul saying? Fight to be an honest person. Okay, struggle and fight a spiritual battle. As the evil one entices you to step back to old patterns, make sure you resist them. And I think it also tells us the kind of people that made up the early church. People that were new in Christ. Who used to have a lifestyle that they had to be embarrassed about. Who now have been so transformed by the gospel of grace. That God has made them a new creation. That could be proudly and honorably embraced by the body of Christ. Okay, so the, the, the first thing that he says is, the one who steals should stop stealing. I want you to ask yourself this question. When is the last time that I fudged or lied to save myself some money and or stole? I'm going to cut a corner to gain a personal advantage financially. Okay? It's, this is something that none of us are going to say, oh yeah, I have a problem with being a thief. Okay, it's not a question I would ask publicly, but the truth is that many people struggle with this issue in ways that are somewhat embarrassing, but I think in ways that we need to confront. Now, in transition, what does Paul say? I think what he says is this. It's good to stop stealing, but stopping stealing in and of itself is not enough. In other words, God doesn't want the church simply to be former thieves that no longer steal. Okay, so what does he say next? He says we should stop stealing, but the second 
commandment that he gives us is that we should work hard. Okay, we should work hard. And what is Paul teaching here? I believe Paul is teaching a replacement theology. Okay, put off the old way of life, put on a new way of life. The one that used to steal, that that used to be the way you got along. Stop doing that and start doing what? Start working hard so that the needs of your household can be met by your hard work. Stealing in this context is replaced by honest hard work. The average person that works a normal job will spend 50% of their waking hours at work. Okay, 50% of your waking hours will be spent at work. It's counting weekends. Okay, it is a significant chunk of your life. And it is important to God. It matters to God. So I think what we could say from this, if God is saying work hard, we can make these assumptions. Number one, work is ordained by God. It's not part of the curse. Okay, the, the call to work and to, to work the land and to till the soil for Adam was given in Genesis 2.15. The curse and the fall happens in Genesis chapter 3. So the idea, the concept of hard work as a means of providing for your needs is a biblical concept. It's not part of the curse. It's part of God's design for all of us. What does it mean? I think it means that we should do our best at our job. We should do it for the glory of God and do it in a way that speaks about diligence and integrity. Okay, do it in a way that is going to honor God, that catches the attention of people around you. The other thing I think we could say about work is this. Work gives a sense of dignity and purpose. Okay, if you go back and read Genesis 1 and 2, which I kind of looked around in this week a little bit, what do you find? You find that God is a creative God. He is a God who is working, who is accomplishing goals and objectives. And when he's done doing his work, what does he do? Here's what the Bible says regularly. He steps back, he looks at what he has done, and what does he say? It was good. And what does that mean? It means that what he looked at and what he saw that he had created, that he had worked on, brought pleasure to him. Okay, and I'll give you a silly illustration. Okay? I, I, I'm, a, I'm a closure kind of person. I, I like tasks where I can get quick closure. Okay, so in my downtime, I tend to focus on tasks that I can do and then step back and look and say, okay, that's great. So this fall, in, in a week or so, I'm going to go into the garden, rip out all the old plants, till the soil, rake it out, get it nice and smooth. And then what am I going to do? I'm going to step back and look at it, and I'm going to feel good. Okay, some of you might be strange like I am. You might get done mowing the grass. And when you get done mowing the grass, you like just to look out the window and say, all right, it's good. All right, I'll organize my shop. There's a sense of purpose okay i get done organizing my shop i like to step back and say okay this is finally clean again okay it's not often true but when it happens i love it okay it's true for all of us in regards we are purposeful creatures work is ordained by god as something that gives us a sense of dignity and purpose ecclesiastes 3:13 says that everyone might find pleasure in all their work this is a gift from god folks don't despise your work don't see it as part of the curse. See it as the God-ordained means by which you provide for your family. Find pleasure in it. Do it with excellence. Do it with all of your heart. Because that's what God does. We bear his image in this sense. And we work, when we work hard, we find joy. We enjoy the, the fruit of our hard labor. And the last thing I would say about work here is this. And I think this is very, very clear from the text. Paul says, he must work doing something useful with his hands. Okay, what is work? Work is the God-ordained means of provision for people. 
Okay, it is the way that God wants us to meet our daily needs in our household. He wants us to be people who embrace the ideas of work. Now, turn ahead to 1 Thessalonians real quick. Chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Okay, I think these are verses that will just kind of give you a little bit of a, of a better focus on the purpose of work. Paul says this. He says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may first win the respect of outsiders, okay? This new person who used to steal, who now works to provide for himself, honors God. He wins the respect of people that are watching his life. And then notice what it says. Do this, work to provide for your own needs so that you will not be dependent upon anybody. Okay, so what does that mean for generosity and how does that affect government policy? I think what it says very clearly is that we should not support policies that create dependency. Okay, we should support policies that encourage people to go out and find a job and provide for your family and find dignity in that. Okay, the person that's on the, that, that's, that's, that's on the state, as it were, doesn't tend to find joy and dignity and pride in people always giving to them to support and meet their needs. Okay, so, so it speaks against things that would promote dependency. I was fascinated as I read a book this week the writer was making an observation about gleaning laws in the Old Testament. You know what gleaning is? Gleaning is harvesting in the Old Testament. It's the same word, okay? And, and in Leviticus 19, this is a fascinating, fascinating passage of Scripture. It talks about gleaning. I want you to think about how it applies to this idea of generosity and working for what you get. Listen to this. It says, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of the field. Now, this is an agri- agrarian culture where almost everybody earned their living, and made their money from what their fields produced. But there were within the culture people that were so poor through various circumstances that didn't any longer own property. What about them? They can't even grow the food that they need. What does the Bible say about them? What is the heart of God for people around us that struggle? Does he make any provision for them? He says, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over the vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. What is God doing there? And the gleaning laws talk about an honorable way in which a poor person can be sustained and have their needs met. But what does it require? It requires generosity on the part of the people that own the land. It requires them not squeezing every penny they can out of their corporation for personal benefit. That's what it means. And that God, in his wisdom, had provided in his loving heart a means by which those that were stuck in poverty would find that their needs were met. Through what? Through work. So gleaning wasn't the primary harvest. Gleaning was the residual harvest where people would go around and find dignity in collecting things that would help to meet their needs. So work is the primary honest means by which God wants us to provide for our families. Also think in, in 2 Thessalonians 3. So if you want to look at this text real quick. 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 10 and 12. 10 through 12. For even when we were with you, 
We gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shouldn't eat. We hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus to settle down and earn the bread they eat. And as for you, brothers, never tire of doing what is right, which I think is a nod back towards that you were created by God to do good works. Okay, so what's the text flow? The text flow is stop stealing, start working. Okay, it's a replacement theology. Put off the old way, the old pattern, put on a new pattern, and it is the means by which you will provide for your family. I think the principle that emerges out of this is something like this. Don't support those who could work but won't. Okay? Don't support those who could work but won't. Okay? That doesn't address people who can't find a job, doesn't address people who are unable to work. Okay? I think there are other laws and directives in Scripture. I think the end of this verse is very clear about what we need to do in relationship to those kinds of circumstances. But what the Bible is speaking against is any policy that promotes a dependency that steals dignity from people. Okay? Work is a means by which we provide for our needs. And I think what's fascinating is that most parents fully understand this, and I think often many politicians don't understand this. And many times the parent says to a child, if you want that extra blessing, you have to do something to earn that. That's wise. That gives your child a sense of dignity and sense of responsibility in learning how to work and learning about the value of it. I like the motto of Habitat for Humanity. They say what we do is not a hand out, it is a hand up. Okay, and I think that's biblical. If you're willing to do your part, we'll help you. Okay, that's the gleaning law, right? We're going to let up a little bit there, but we're not going to harvest before you can give it to you. If you want it, if you desire it, if you need it, go and get it. And find dignity in that very simple pattern of provision. They, and what does it also do? It kills the desire to steal. Okay, why? Because if my needs are met, I don't have to steal to provide for myself and for my family. I think a culture of dependency steals dignity and pride from people's lives. Now, one of the things I've, I've, I've observed for you as we've gone through any of the uh, topics related to the Ten Commandments is this. Every commandment in Scripture in regards to the Ten Commandments has an antithesis to it. Okay, so let's think of it this way. Okay, there's a, the command in the Ten Commandments says, Thou shalt not murder. Okay, what is that a command to do? What do you think? God says, don't murder. Is that always once? Just walk around and avoid murder, and then your relationships with people are fine. I get really angry with my wife, but I didn't, you know. I'm really angry with my kids the other day, but I didn't, you know. Boy, that guy at work irritates me so much, but I didn't. Okay? How does Jesus translate it? You have heard that it was said, thou shalt not murder. But I say to you, what does he say? Love. Who? Not your neighbor, your enemy. Okay, you see what happens? God says, don't lie. What is he saying? Tell the truth. Okay, when God says don't steal, what is he saying? Is he simply saying, hey, I can get everything out of life that I want to get out of it. I can live a greedy, self-centered life, make life all about me. And if I die that way and never stole from anybody, I'm clean. In regards to the command, thou shalt not steal. I think Paul would challenge you on that. 
I think Paul would say, if you are not practicing generosity towards those that have valid needs around you, you are stealing from them. And I say, oh, that sounds a little strong. Okay, folks, listen. If there's a command to be generous, then a lack of generosity is withholding from someone what rightfully belongs to them by the design and plan of God. Okay, are there caveats on it? Yes, there are caveats. There are conditions on it. Okay, but what Paul's going to do here is he's going to move from, if you will, a, a strong command that him who stole must steal no longer. Instead, he must work with his hands doing something useful. Why? Is that all that he says? Do something useful so you can provide for your needs. It's not where he stops. What does he do? He goes on to say something like this. He must work doing something useful with his hands so that he may have something to share with those in need. What is the antithesis to stealing? The antithesis to stealing is what? It is doing good with your hands so that you can do good with your life. So that when you see needs around you, you are ready and able to meet those needs. That's what Jesus did, isn't it? He came, emptied himself so that he could meet our needs. He gave of his resources so that our needs, our deepest need, could be met. So the third command in this text is this. Work to give generously. And, and this is stated as a motivation, if you will, as the supreme reason behind our work. Along with providing for our families, he's saying what? So that you have something to give to, to minister to people that have needs. Now, let me say this. Okay, this giving generously, is it to be with blindfolders on? Okay, without any regard for how people use what I give them and any regard for their circumstance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The answer to that is clearly no. Okay, in the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 5, you have a list on which widows are placed in order to see that their needs are met. Now, that list has qualifications for getting on it so the church can know how to appropriately meet the needs of the individuals that are being spoken about. Okay, 1 Timothy, what did Paul say? Paul said, if a man won't work, he shouldn't eat. 1 Timothy 5, he says, if a man won't provide for his own household, that is, has the capacity and opportunity and refuses to do so, what is he? he here's what Paul says. King James puts it strong. It says he is worse than an infidel. If he could provide for his family, but refuses to do so, Paul says he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Okay, so are there conditions on this? Yes, there are conditions. Work hard. Okay, give generously. Is there ever a gray area where you Not sure. Yeah. Because in our minds, what are we thinking? Is that needy person really deserving of help? Are they in that circumstance because of the series of bad decisions they've made? The answer is often yeah. 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 But think of the gospel. My bad situation, my spiritual poverty before God is a result of what? My sin. My capacity to make bad decisions and to need the help of God. Right? But we understand that when we sin, that God moves in our direction and He offers us grace. He is generous in His love and forgiveness upon us. But when someone's in need, we want to use a different scale. We don't want to use the gospel as the means by which we decide whether we should provide for them. All right, we want to use a rigid law. 
that says, well, if you got yourself into the situation by bad choices on your part, then you've got to make good decisions to get out. Is that the gospel applied to generosity? I would argue no. Sometimes you're going to help people who have simply made bad decisions. Sometimes people go bankrupt because they just made, in a moment, a foolish decision. Okay? Now, we should move in their direction to seek to disciple them and encourage them, bring the gospel to them, and help them. Okay? I think that's the biblical mandate that's present here. The goal is simply not to stop stealing or simply to work hard, but to work so that you can have, so that you can give. I thought of this this morning. I thought, when I open or when I cash my paycheck, is that how I think? I mean, really. When's the last time you opened your paycheck and you thought to yourself, boy, I wonder what need someone has that by virtue of this hard work and provision, I could meet. Okay, folks, the honest truth is what? Where we live, we, we tend to be very blind to the needs that are present. We tend to be pretty sophisticated in our thinking about our generosity. Sometimes too sophisticated. Sometimes so sophisticated that we justify disobedience. And what I believe at one level and may end up literally be stealing from God himself. The working hard that is encouraged here is a correction. The generosity is a spirit-born revolution and reformation. Okay? People can choose to stop stealing. Why? Well, they're afraid of getting caught. But the person that stops stealing and starts working hard so that they can practice generosity towards others, that person has been transformed. And I think that's the idea that Paul's talking about here. You are a new creation, created in Christ to do what? To do good to others. That's the heart of the Christian church. That's the heart of Jesus Christ. Takers become givers. Thieves become philanthropists. Burglars become benefactors. Why? There's hope for them. The gospel changes. And it can deliver you from anything, folks. Listen, it doesn't matter what the sin is. This text says that there is hope. There were people in the context of the early church who had this story, who had been changed. All of a sudden, the thief is no longer a taker. He's a giver. How does that happen? That's the power of the gospel that invades our lives and changes us. Think of the person that Jesus forgave on the last day of his physical life. The thief on the cross, right? who at the moment of his death could be transformed by the power of God. There's hope for forgiveness. My mind drifted to the story of a man in the Bible named Zacchaeus. He used to sing a song when I was a kid. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. And a wee little man was he. He climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. What did he need? He needed grace. What was he? He was a thief. He was a dirty scoundrel. He was a tax collector who abused the tax code system to embellish his own wealth. He did it without thinking of the needs of others. He lived an utterly selfish life. He was a despicable man. He just wanted to see Christ, probably purely out of curiosity. Jesus looks at him and says, Zacchaeus, to your house, I'm coming today. He goes to Zacchaeus' house. As he enjoys the presence of Christ, what happens? He is being changed Why? This teacher, this loving, gracious teacher has come into my house. And as his heart breaks in the presence of the generosity of Jesus, what happens? Zacchaeus 
stands up and he gives a speech. He says, Lord, if I have taken anything from anyone, I will give it back to them fourfold. And 50% of what I have, I'm giving to the poor. Jesus didn't have to say a lot, but he does. He says this. He says, salvation has come to your house today. What is salvation? It's that transformation when a stingy person, for fear of not having their needs met, becomes a generous person, transformed by the grace and power of God. His repentance is evident. Because true faith in Jesus always brings transformation and radical change. It's not just that he started working honestly. No, he took what he had and he gave it to others. Is meeting the needs of, poor, of the poor mandated in Scripture for Christians? Because I think this is a question we need to answer. Is it mandated that Christians... Meet the needs of the poor. And I'm, I'm going to say this, okay? Because we live in a culture where our government does a lot of charity. Okay? I'm not saying that I agree with it in terms of how it is done. But I live in a country where, because it's what? It's a Judeo-Christian ethic. And there is a natural concern for those that are in poverty and have less. I live in a country where a lot of those needs are met. So there's a sense in which, what do you feel? As a taxpayer, what do you feel? Any of you other heathens feel this way? <laughs> okay, I do. There are times I feel like, well, you know what? I, in the tax code, in the system, there's a mandate to do generosity. Is it done wisely? I don't believe it's done as wisely as it could be. Is it messy? Yeah, it's very messy. But I guess the question that I ended up wrestling with is, okay, does that get me off the hook? <laughs> I mean, seriously, I'm just being honest. Okay, am I off the hook? You know, in 1 Timothy 6, Paul said, command those who are rich. Which if you've studied any statistics, you know that that's probably the majority of us in this room. Command those who are rich to be generous and to give the needs around you. Folks, what I want to encourage you to do, I want to encourage you to be generous. I want to encourage you to do what Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. He says, when you come to the temple to give your alms, which is really giving for the poor, he says, do your act of righteousness. What is the act of righteousness? The act of righteousness in the context is giving to the poor. Look at Matthew chapter 6 and verse 1. When you do it, do it with a good heart. Because, folks, when Jesus says that that benevolence is an act of generosity, or, or, or that act of generosity is also an act of righteousness, what is he saying? It's justice. See, righteousness and justice used in Scripture almost in, in a way that they can, one, one can replace the other. To do righteousness is to do justice. So when we give to the poor, when we support people that have serious needs, what are we doing? We're doing acts of righteousness that God ordained beforehand that we should walk in them. Galatians 6.10 Let us do good to all men. Good, righteous, just things. But especially do it to the household of faith. Okay, so there is a, a mandate that is in Scripture about helping, about looking for needs that are present around us and helping to meet those needs. But that also raises a question, doesn't it? Why do we resist generosity? Why do you fight it? Why do I fight it? Why do I... 
You know, I, I find out about a need, and the first, what is my mind? I'm going to be honest with you, my mind starts clicking through. I wonder what bad decisions they made. I wonder if they've been foolish what they have. I wonder if they're deserving of the things that, you know, they're asking for. That's the kind of stuff that runs through my sinful mind. First thoughts. Why? Well, because I'm so loving, and I really want to help people at the deeper level. Uh, sometimes I like to think that way, but I don't think that's really it. I think the driving issue is something the Bible calls greed. I think my stinginess is rooted in doubt and fear about having my own needs met. Some of it's rooted in being judgmental, but I think most of it's rooted in, am I going to be happy? Am I going to be provided for? Am I going to be taken care of if I act in generous ways? That's the battle, isn't it? Psalm 16.11 crushes that objection. Psalm 16.11 says, in your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand pleasures that last So regularly when Jesus talks about giving and generosity, what is he saying? You're laying, up, you're laying up riches in heaven where the purse can never rot and the coins fall out. May God help us to be liberated from our judgmentalism, to be freed from our, our greed, to be freed from our clinging to things, to be so transformed by the gospel that we are looking forward as we sung. And I... The, the songs are so beautiful. And we talk about what we're looking forward to. Singing those songs together does what? It clarifies my hope of heaven. As we sing that, it makes heaven comes nearer. My desire for that blessed place grows richer and dearer to my heart. And what does it do? It begins to break the bondage of greed. So that the church can be the most generous people on the planet. Tim Keller asked this question. He says, what pushes the button, though, of generosity? You ever say to someone, yeah, doing this and this, that really pushes my button. It gets me energized. It, it turns me on. It gets me jazzed about something. What gets us jazzed about generosity? Folks, I want to say this. I think the only thing that would jazz you about generosity is the gospel. 2 Corinthians 8 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for our sakes he became poor, that we by his poverty might become rich. And in that context, what does Paul say? He talks about the absolute emptying of himself that Jesus endured, so that he might give himself to us, and he uses that as the motivation for gospel-centered generosity in the city of Corinth. Generosity is prompted by the gospel. Milton Vincent, in his book called A Gospel Primer, says this. He says, when I see persons who are materially poor, I instantly feel a kinship with them. For they are physically what I was spiritually when my heart was closed to Christ. Think about that. This is gospel-centered thinking. Okay, when you see someone in poverty, what should you see? You should see your poverty. Perhaps some of them are in their position because of sin but so was I. Perhaps they are unkind when I want to help them, but I too have been spiteful to God when he sought to help me. 
Perhaps they are thankless and even abuse or misuse the kindness I show them. But how many times have I been thankless and used what God has given me to serve my selfish ends? Wow. God moved in my direction before I merited it, before I deserved it, before I did anything right. He moved in the direction of a rebellious sinner and saved him by grace. Folks, let the gospel, let it push the button of gratitude in your heart that changes you and that causes you to see driving into work differently. This is an opportunity to provide for my family, to have dignity and to have purpose, fulfilling it in a way that honors God. And when do you get your paycheck? Ask the question, God, is there someone that you want me to help? Is there some need that I can meet? Show me, show me. Thank you, Lord, for your word this morning.